Good morning, Anthem. Well, some of you, uh, last week, if you've been following us for First Peter, uh, we got through, uh, you know, the passage on uh, submit to the emperor, right? Submit to bosses, those who are over you in life. And some of you are like, oh, phew, we got through that one. You're like, oh, on to the next passage. And then you just heard the scripture reading, and you're like, well, this is awkward. Uh, so uh, <laughs> can we go back, right? Uh, so uh, we're going to be talking this morning. Uh, th- by the way, I should say, this is why we teach through uh, books of the Bible. Uh, this is why sometimes we'll do topical series where we kind of hit different topics and, and go to jump around the Bible and what it says about things. But predominantly, our steady diet here on Sunday mornings at Anthem is teaching through books of the Bible. And the reason is because God's Word addresses all kinds of things in life, including the, the hard issues, right? The, the issues we, we wrestle with. And, and so the issue is we are going to go to someone. Someone's standard, someone's truth, someone's understanding, someone's research, something for our understanding of how wives and husbands should relate to one another. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to hear from God's word. And I'm actually, I'm really excited, actually, to be able to, to walk through this because I was in- incredibly encouraged this last week while just studying this passage. My wife and I were talking through this passage a lot yesterday on a car ride to St. Louis and back the whole time we were talking about this. And so, and, and here's the reason why, because I think the question is, as we get to this, is just this some outdated idea? Just put it right out there. Right from the beginning, I want to put, is this just some outdated idea? You know, there are various views on this. Some will say that, you know, the Bible's understanding of this is just kind of, you know, Paul and Peter. Peter's writing this letter. Paul uh, writes most of the rest of the New Testament, and there are a lot of other passages like this passage that say similar things. Uh, wives and wives submitting to husbands and what the roles look like between men and women, even just broader than just uh, men or and husband, but also men and women. What does it mean if we're bi- our biological sex is that we're born as men and women? It doesn't have any implications actually for gender and manhood and womanhood, even that just in general. And the question, the thing that comes up is sometimes folks will claim, well, well, of course, Peter and Paul are just, and, and the New Testament writers, all the biblical writers, they're a product of their time, right? So they're, they're a product of their time. So they're just writing out of their own understanding. Now, I think they're a... a, a and I could go down a lot of rabbit trails today. I think there are a lot of things we could say with that. One of them being, uh, one, I think what the Bible presents is actually profoundly revolutionary for first century culture. So they weren't just products of their time. But that what we see in, when you go down that road, is that then then becomes a question, well, what else in the Bible is a product of human imagination? What else in the Bible is just a product of the time? What happens if, well, the resurrection and the understanding of someone supernaturally rising from the dead, a virgin birth, all those things. What happens, it can be a thread that pulls everything out. Now, others say, we don't have to go that far. Actually, what it is, it's a misinterpretation of what the Bible has presented. We're misreading the Bible. So it's not the nature of the Bible that's in question. It's actually how we read the Bible that is in question. This has actually come up a lot over the last year. There are a couple of well-known books that have, have been going around. And, and, and honestly, um, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the reading that says, see, what actually the way that we should understand the New Testament is that actually we haven't gone back far enough. What we've done is we've, we should go back and understand that everything in the New Testament is actually post-fall. And the interpretation has come, it's a result of the curse. And so because man and, uh, the reality of the difference between men and women in a marriage, that's a result of the curse, and that's being undone now in Jesus Christ. And they point to passages like in Galatians where it's, uh, there's neither slave nor free, Gentile nor Jew, male nor female. 
So Jesus now has flattened out the differences between man and woman. And I'm very sympathetic to because the argument goes, see, what happens is when we understand men and women, wives and husbands, is that we've kind of added on all these cultural ideas to that. It's not really biblical anymore. We've just added on all this stuff. And I have to be honest with you guys, I'm incredibly sympathetic with it. I think there's something there that's true that we have to look at. And we have to kind of like plaque that builds up over time, just cultural ideas of what it means to be a wife or a husband. And they just kind of get added on different models of manhood and womanhood, and they distort the biblical presentation. And I, I'm sympathetic to that because I did not grow up in a Christian home, and I grew up actually in an abusive home where my father was abusive. And so I'm very sympathetic with the fact that we need to get to the core of what's actually there. And here's the thing. I, I think that they get to something, which is we need to go back, but I think they don't go back far enough. Because here's the reality, with all these different readings, you still end up going back and you realize that in Genesis 2, before the fall, is where God actually already starts to delineate the difference between man and woman and husband and wife. And so we go back to there, we see that God's presenting this beautiful picture of what he intends for husbands and wives and how they relate to one another. And today we're going to be looking at that reality, which is the fact that there is something stamped deeply within us in the image of God as male and female that resonates with this, I believe. And I think the issue is we have to get to what is being presented biblically. What is a biblical understanding of how wives and husbands relate to one another? And so what we're going to look at this morning is first submission reveals God's heart, submission reveals our hearts, and then how to unite our hearts in submission. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Uh, Heavenly Father, teach us, Lord, this morning to lean not on our own understanding. Lord, we come to your word because, Lord, we have so many different ideas on this and, and all of us have different experiences in terms of fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and all. We've seen horrible pictures of this, distortions of this, and Lord, also we've seen beautiful pictures of this. And so, Lord, we come to you to hear from your word. Lord, help us to have a better understanding of this so that, Lord, we might live it out and we might glorify you and honor you. Lord, help us to see today that you are a creator who has given us the good gift of male and female husband and wife. Help us to think big things of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, submission, how it reveals God's heart. Look at verses 1 and 2. Likewise. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So Peter starts here with likewise. What's he referring to? Likewise, like something I've said before. And what Peter's referring to is, he said likewise when he referred to the emperors, submitting to the emperor, and then also to masters, which I don't have time to break it down right now, but it's probably an equivalent more so because of the economic realities of then to almost like bosses. Like whoever's over you economically in your life, who is the person? And he's saying again and again, submit to them. And likewise now, wives take that model, and he's going to say for husbands as well later, Take your model from who? What do they all have in common? All of them, the way Peter explains it, is the example of how the Son, Jesus Christ, submits to the Father. Now, why does Peter do that? Why does Peter do that? Again and again where he says the, the model here for submission is the Son submitting to the Father. Because what Peter is doing is he's saying that there's something about the example of the Son submitting to the Father. That gives us our cues, that help us to understand what's really going on here, why we are being called to submit in marriage. 
If you look back at 2.23, it actually is the closest thing we have to a definition of submission. At the end of it, when it says that he was reviled, Jesus was, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It says he entrusted himself. See, the definition of submission is just to entrust yourself to the will of another. And Jesus entrusted himself to the will of his father, to the lead of his father. And that's important. It's important first because it says that there is the way that we have to begin by understanding biblically what submission is and what it means for marriage is we have to go back to who God is and what he's revealed in himself. We are created in the image of God. And so, of course, if we're creating the image of God, if there's something of this, a hint of this kind of submission in some way in the Godhead, it probably has some corollary in our lives as made male and female in the image of God. And what we see is that God is one in essence. But that there's a unity there. But then there's also a diversity in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which are distinct roles. And what we see is that the Father is the one who wills, and the Son is the one who fulfills the will of the Father. And so here's, here's why that's key. One, it, it begins to help us begin to see that there can be different roles, but there can be kind of equal in, in, in worth and in personhood. But at the same time, too, here's what it really points out. We often in our day, we immediately when we hear words like submission, I, I just want to right away deal with this. We immediately think bad word. Now, we can think of all the abuses of it and that, and we'll come back to that, but we immediately think it's just out of court immediately. But here's the thing. If submission itself is a sin and it is wrong, then we have to wrestle with the fact that the second person of the Trinity submitted himself to the Father. See, submission itself is not a sin. Submission itself is not wrong. The issue is what is appropriate submission? What is healthy submission? So then it goes on. It, gives, it helps us to understand kind of categories. So we have this parallel to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and within the Godhead. And then now we have male and female. And so there have been three primary ways of understanding this. See, the primary way, you have to have that unity and you have that diversity in role. A distinction in role. And so the three primary roles or uh, views on this are one, patriarchalism, right? You probably heard this term, patriarchalism. It affirms distinction in roles, but it denies equality, dignity, and worth. So normally this is kind of like doormat theology, right? But the husband just rules. Patriarchy comes from the word for pateros for in, uh, in Latin for father. And so it just means that the male rules over the female. Males are in charge. Females are subjugated doormats, right? Egalitarianism denies distinction in roles, but affirms equality and dignity in words. So it says that there aren't distinctions between male and female in the way that God has stamped them and called them to live out and living out the image of God. And, but it affirms dignity and worth that there, there's equality there. And then the third one is complementarianism. It affirms both distinction in roles and equality and dignity and in worth. What I want to do is I want to read a passage that's going to break down, because we as a church, we are complementarian. What we hold to, we see that male and female, they're complementary in their roles, in their lives with one another, and that's what Peter's talking about here in terms of in marriage, how that plays out. And so I want to read a quote that's going to break down. I, I just think this is one of the best. I, it's a little bit lengthy, but I think it'd be worth it. It's from Mary Cassian, who's a, a theologian. And she says this. She says, Complementarians believe that God created male and female as complementary expressions of the image of God. Male and female are counterparts in reflecting his glory. Having two sexes depend, expands the view. Though both sexes bear God's image fully on their own, each does so in a unique and distinct way. Male and female in relationship reflects truths about Jesus that aren't reflected by male alone or female alone. Complementarians, however, do not believe that men as a group rank higher than women. Men are not superior to women. Women are not the second sex. 
Men have a responsibility to exercise headship in their homes and church family, and Christ revolutionized the definition of what that means. Authority, catch this, is not the right to rule, it's the responsibility to serve. Essentially, a complementarian is a person who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. That's the bottom line meaning of the word. Complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight in Christ's relationship to the church and the Lord God's relationship to Christ in a way that females cannot and that females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the Lord God in a way that males cannot. Who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. It's about testifying to the story of Jesus. We do not get to dictate what manhood and womanhood are all about. Our creator does. That's the basis of complementarianism. If you hear someone tell you that complementarity means you have to get married, have dozens of babies, be a stay-at-home housewife, clean toilets, completely forgo a career, chuck your brain, tolerate abuse, watch Leave It to Beaver reruns, bury your gifts, deny your personality, and bobblehead nod yes to everything men say don't believe her. That's a straw woman misrepresentation. It's not complementarianism. I should know I'm a complementarian. Men and women, equal in dignity and worth, but distinct in the roles that God has given them. See, the reason why this passage is not dated is because this passage and what it has to say to wives and husbands is no more dated than what happened on the cross in the son submitting himself to the father. It's no more dated than that reality. It flows out of who God is, how God created the world. We see something of his heart and how he hardwired the world and what he calls us to, what he's designed. And the gift he's given us, and male and female. So how does it reveal God's heart? Let's just, a little bit more. We need to go back again, a little bit back, and we're to move forward to Genesis 2. So in Genesis 2, and I, again, don't have time to unpack all this, but in Genesis 2, what we see before the fall we see God, it zooms in, kind of you have creation zoomed out in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 zooms in, and you see Adam and Eve, and he creates humanity, and he places him in the garden. You see these distinct roles, and he has Adam working in the garden, and he essentially, you could boil it down to, he says, Adam, you are to have responsibility over the sphere of life I've given you, and you are to tend it. You are to cultivate it, and he says, cultivate it for my glory. Wish I had time. You guys have heard me talk about this before. God created a world that's in his image out of an overflow of his love and delight in himself. This world is a theater of glory. He's uniquely made humanity to join in that capacity of delight and love and relationship with the creator. And he's put us in a world filled with glory. And he says, take the raw materials of this creation and cultivate it for my glory. And he says, Adam, you are to take the lead in doing that. Whatever sphere I've given you, and men, whatever sphere of life God has given you, you're to take dominion over it and exercise responsibility and cultivate it for good and truth and beauty and justice. And if not, you will be under the judgment of God. And then he says, and then he makes a woman. He says, it's not good for him to be alone. And he makes Eve. He says, he makes a woman who he calls a helper fit for him. Now that word helper, we immediately hear that word helper and go, oh, I don't know about. Helper is a word that's also used of God later on in Exodus and throughout the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew term that is essentially saying it's bringing strength where there is weakness. And what, what's being presented there is God is saying, I've created this world that has 
just this potential for glory and beauty and truth and goodness. And God sends us into this world of teeming with life, teeming with joy, teeming with love. And he says, I'm putting you together to become a one flesh union so that you together would cultivate life. You would cultivate glory. You would cultivate truth and beauty and justice. And he says, I've made you of one mind. I've made you of one flesh. I've made you of one will. And you get to partner in that reality. It's a beautiful picture of what God calls us to. And the woman isn't meant to just be subjugated. The wife isn't just meant to just be there as a servant. Augustine, Augustine, however you want to say it, he said this, if God had meant woman to rule over man, he would have taken her out of Adam's head. Had he designed her to be his slave, he would have taken her out of his feet. But God took woman out of man's side, for he made her to be a helpmeet or a helper and an equal with him. Partner. Both with unique giftings. The man, the weight of serving forward and leading the wife as a helper and together partnering, cultivating life, cultivating glory, cultivating what is good together. Both of them worshiping God. After worshiping God, the husband submitting to the Lord and the wife submitting to the husband. He gives a picture, especially later on, after the fall. And everything falls apart, and yet God's very son goes into the world. Why? Because the Father's will is life. God's heart doesn't change. God's will doesn't change. Oh, everything fell. Man messed it up. Now I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change my heart. No, out of God and who he is, his very self flows this life that makes creation. And when we fall, then it overflows with life and grace and pursuing fallen humanity in a world fallen into sin through his son coming. He says, Father, I submit to your will. What is my role in this? And he says, go and save them. And the son lays down his life to pursue the bride and brings back a new reign, recreates us so that we might join in that life again and that calling of cultivating glory. And he says, when you do this, it looks like me. It looks like you put my heart on display. And this is why Peter says here, or wives, even if they do not obey the, the word, when you submit yourself ultimately, ultimately to the Lord, so your husband doesn't submit to the Lord, but you do, and you worship him. And the way you live your life is the way that you say, I'm going to cultivate glory. I'm going to pursue the Lord. I'm going to pursue goodness in my life. No matter what any man in my life does, a man does not complete me. I worship the Lord. And when you do that and you cultivate that glory, people around you, they see it and they say, what is that? And it wins them over. Because it pictures Christ. Submission actually on a profound level, captures the heart of God as it captures the very essence of our salvation and the Son submitting himself to the Father and fulfilling his will and coming into the world. And we picture that in our relationships with one another in marriage. Now, submission, how it also reveals our hearts. Uh, Peter makes an interesting sudden transition here. He goes on to talk about modesty, and then he talks about Sarah. In verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry, or the clothing you wear. 
But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart within imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So what is interesting here is he, he says, I think what Peter's doing here, because he kind of goes off, like, right? It's like wives submit to husbands, and he starts talking about modesty, then he starts talking about Sarah. What's he doing here? I think what Peter's doing, he's saying, I want to make sure we get this right. Because Peter's talking into a cultural context that had all kinds of ideas out around Asia Minor as this is circulating about what it meant. They probably would have erred on the side of patriarchalism in that day. They would have. Not kind, maybe. They would have. He says, I want to get this right, because here's the thing. What he's saying is, essentially, and I think this speaks in our day, that ultimately you will submit your life to something. You will. What he's saying is, I want to get this right because I want you to know what it looks like to submit to the Lord, to know him and what that looks like in marriage. Because here's the thing. We often go to two heirs, which are either we submit too much or we submit too little. We submit too much or we submit too little, and both are completely unbiblical understandings of submission. So submitting too much, again, verses 3 and 4, when it says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So what's he saying here? What he's saying here is God is ultimately after your heart. So women hear this, girls Females, hear this. God is after your heart. What he's saying here is God is after the hidden person, the part that only he can see. He says, I want you to know me. I want you to worship me. I want you to know me, to be alive in me, to love me, and to know my love for you. I want you to worship him and to know him. Because here's the thing. Why do they let their, lo- their, their adorning be external? Why do they let their adorning be external? Because I think what he's saying here is when you're the hidden person of your heart is not submitted in worshiping the Lord, what happens is you begin to submit to the things around you and the culture and what the men and the culture and those around you tell you make you beautiful and make you a woman. So what he's saying here is you're... Oftentimes what happens is those of us who say, oh, we, we don't submit, we don't do this stuff, we're freed of this old archaic idea, we don't submit to anything. But here's the thing, what often happens is in the vacuum, you end up submitting too much. But you end up submitting to the cultural standards of what it means to be a woman. You end up submitting to whatever men in our age say is what it means to be a woman. And you actually end up submitting to those things. Russell Moore, theologian, he just absolutely nails this. We're so often now in our day, and listen to this, and think about this, that so often in our day with this vacuum, with no understanding of male and female, and what this means, and we just start grabbing on to all these standards, and someone starts abusing it. He says this, despite the promise of female empowerment in the present age, the sexual revolution has given us the reverse. It is, really an advance, is it really an advance for women that the average high school male has seen images of women sexually exploited and humiliated on the internet? Is it really empowerment to have more and more women economically at the mercy of men who freely abandon them and their children, often with legal recourse? Is this really a pro-woman culture when restaurant chains enable men to ogle at women in tight t-shirts while they gobble down chicken wings? How likely is it that a woman with the attractiveness of Henry Kissinger will obtain power or celebrity status in American culture? What about the girl in your community pressured to perform blank on a boyfriend? What is this but a patriarchy brutal enough for a Bronze Age warlord? In the church, it is little better. 
Too many of our girls and young women are tyrannized by the expectation to look a certain way, to weigh a certain amount, in order to gain the attention of guys. See, what happens in the vacuum of an actual standard of what it means to be male and female, what happens is we become just manipulated and at the whims of however culture is going to define it for us. And what's happened in our day is that now the problem is not that we're just free of submission and we're not submitting at all. The problem is that now we're submitting to the wrong things. And that pressure is coming down constantly. And so now it's social, I mean, Moore, I think, wrote this like four or so, so years ago. Like now the pressure upon you as women to constantly through Instagram and comparing yourselves. Everywhere you go, everyone's telling you, think like this, talk like this, act like this, be like this, give yourself like this. In other words, it's a language that's a different language that's saying submit to this design. It's using different language. But here's the thing. Are we submitting, worshiping, culture, men? Are we submitting too much, actually? gospel, why Peter says this. It's in the context of the larger part of the letter, but what he's saying is the only way to fight this is to know, to be adorned with the reality of who you are in Christ, who you are as a daughter of God, to know that deep down, to worship God, to know him above all else to know that your body doesn't belong to any cultural expectation, any man, but it belongs to the Lord, to know that your life doesn't belong to the culture or any man, but it belongs to the Lord, that no man completes you. And the reason why he says the way you can know this is check modesty. It's actually kind of interesting. Just think about how you dress. Why does he do this? Because I think at the end of the day, what he's saying, he's asking is, are you dressing? Is the way you present yourself to the world, the way you can kind of tell if this is going on in your heart, is the way you present yourself to the world and outwardly adorn yourself, is it done in such a way that's meant to absorb glory or to reflect glory? Is there something in you that says, when I go out every day, I have to receive the awe, the worship, the looks, the things that then, if I get those things, then I will feel like I'm something. Then I will feel loved. Then I will feel affection. Then I'll feel like there's something to me that's, that's worth it. That's enough. What Peter is saying is don't go down that road. If you realize that there's just this trying to externally adorn yourself, then realize that there's something hidden within you that God wants to touch and he wants to satisfy. And I would also say to men, Scripture warns of this because this dynamic is what I think just causes this whole dynamic between men and women in our culture to get worse and worse and worse. He says this in Proverbs 30. He says, this is the way of the adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Men, when you feed this, women are not, this woman is after worship, not your studliness. She doesn't want you to want, she doesn't want you, she wants you to want her. Men do not feed this dynamic. And women 
find freedom from this dynamic. Don't submit to this stuff. Submitting too little. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything. That is frightening. Now, notice here at the end it says that there's a complete lack of fear. There's conviction. What got her there? Well, I think what Peter's saying here and why he brings in Sarah is he's actually saying because Sarah knew Abraham's proper place in her life. Uh, when we read this at first, we read and it says, you know, he, she called him Lord. And we go, oh, like it's this walking around like, oh, me Lord, me Lord, right? Like this kind of weird, old, archaic way of like talking to your husband. Like, no, what actually is happening here, there's a reason why it's lowercase. The, 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 where this is referring to in the Old Testament comes from Genesis 18. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and the, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The whole time... Sarah has been dealing with Abraham's failure after failure after failure. And then at this point, when he says, and the promises are going to come true through you and Abraham, and she's like, my Lord. Like, she's, at this point, she calls him Adonai, because here's the issue. Peter is making a distinction here. Sarah knew who she worshipped, and she knew it wasn't her husband. And she knew who she worshipped was someone called Yahweh. See, she calls him Adonai versus Yahweh because she did not confuse who she submitted to versus who she worshipped. She worshipped Yahweh, but she submitted to her husband because she was submitted to Yahweh ultimately. In other words here, what is happening is that Sarah never confused submitting to her husband with worship of him. And this is what I mean by submitting too little. I fear that some of you, so I've just kind of, let me just put it like this. I've just talked kind of, I think we, when we think we're free from submission, and I guess if you want to use these terms, we're modern people, we don't do submission anymore, I'm against this. I want to ask you and challenge you, are you actually submitting too much? And then for those of us who say, yeah, rah, rah, submission, I want to ask you, are you actually submitting too little? Because I think ultimately what happens is sometimes the reason why we like submission to our husband is because we actually worship him. And he's replaced God in our life. And that is just as equally a distortion of a biblical understanding of submission and a strain on your heart and your soul and unhealthy as the other extreme. Because what happens, submission is not worshiping your husband that will only enable his sin. And if you do, you worship him, you will always live in fear. That's why he says here that she's full of conviction. She doesn't live in fear because she understands, okay, Abraham, I'll submit to you, but ultimately because I'm submitted to the Lord and I trust him and I worship him. I don't worship you, Abraham. She doesn't find her sense of self. If Abraham goes into sin, I'm not following you there, Abraham. She doesn't live in fear. She lives full of conviction. Because ultimately, for us, Peter says, we should know, and wives, you should know that all the standards of righteousness have been met in Jesus Christ fully. And that will do, that will drive you to do good and to fear anything that is frightening. Heart that is quiet and gentle before the Lord is strong and filled con with conviction before men. No! Yes. Worship of the Lord comes before submission to men. 
God is not calling you to be a doormat, but a doorway to the kingdom of God. Conviction. Strength. Peter then picks up in verse 7 with the men. And he says as well, likewise, likewise, husbands. Now, likewise, again, he's referring back to, remember, the model of Jesus Christ. That's been the model the whole time. And he's saying, husbands, it's going to look like Jesus in the way that you lead your wives. It's going to look like Christ-like sacrifice. And it looks like live with your wives. Live with, not lord over. Not control, not dominate. You're to be a man, not a god in your home. It means, as then he goes on to say, in an understanding way, to draw out, to understand your wife, not to just, oh, she's just a woman. (laughs) She's uniquely made in the image of God with unique giftings, unique temperament, unique needs, and emotional reality, like she's just a unique person, a unique calling, unique gifting, unique strengths. Draw her out. Don't just bark her around. Draw her out. Walk with her. See her as your, see her as your partner. She strengthens you where you are weak. Listen to her. Live with her in an understanding way, seeking to understand what makes her tick so you can communicate your love to her, that you cherish her. Draw out that inner person of the heart. You're to be men, not boys. Show honor as the weaker vessel. What does that mean? Well, vessel is just a word for it. He's referring to her body. He's saying our physical bodies, we, our souls are in a physical vessel while we're in this world. And generally, not always, but generally, men are a stronger vessel than women, right? So yet, biologically, we know this, that men, because of testosterone and our frame is bigger and we, we just tend to get larger. And then we have, I think it's what, an eighth of a second faster, fast twitch muscle, like all this stuff, right? We know, and so here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, honor her. Do not lead her by intimidating her with your physical body. Do not raise your hand. Do not even give her a sense that you will use your body to overpower her. You lead her with love. You lead her with wisdom. You lead her with truth, not with physical force, ever. You honor her. You honor her as precious. You honor her as valuable. You honor her as Song of Solomon says, as worth the payment of an entire life. To be given the privilege of this woman to be in your life, to be your wife, to be your lover. Value her, protect her, treasure her, honor her, not common use. She is not some domestic servant. She is not a sexual slave. She is your wife. You are to honor her. How does your home reinforce that? How do your words reinforce that? Dads who have children, how how do you allow your children to speak to your wife? 
How does your schedule reflect your prioritizing of her, your treasuring of her? Does it communicate that she is honored? And this is why I'm saying it forcefully, because then this last clause is so important. It says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, let me ask you, some of you husbands go, well, why is that a big deal? Well, do you pray for your wife? Or do you just try to control her as if you're the Holy Spirit and you overpower her? What Peter is saying here is if you abuse and you manipulate and you misuse your power and your, your place of authority in the marriage, then God will remove your actual power. When you cry out to the God of the universe, the one who has authority, who has ultimate power, the line will be dead until the moment that you realize that you are being overpowering. I'm tempted to use other words. I'm trying not to, so I'm losing my mind. <laughs> until the moment that you fall to your knees before him and you realize that he is the God and you need to be submitted to him before you even attempt to lead your wife. We don't lead by being temperamental, yelling, intimidating, to bring into conformity to our will. That is not how God saved us. When Jesus was given all power and authority in heaven and in earth, he laid down his life. He served us. He led us by dying for us. He took his power, he took that authority, and he wielded it for the good of his bride. And what Peter is saying is, do you realize, men, that you have the privilege of modeling that in your home? This is an amazing reality, one that is incredibly convicting for me. There is nothing sweeter. Your call is just like in Genesis 2, to cultivate. Think of your home like a garden, and every day when you get up, you should be thinking about how to cultivate and lead that home and set a temperature and a temperament in that home that cultivates glory and beauty and truth and love and grace. Biblical submission reveals our hearts because true, godly, healthy, life-giving, biblical submission can only come from the heart. A heart immersed in the love of the Father and His Son, who fulfilled His will. Third, lastly, submission. How do you unite our hearts in it? I should say, if you're not married, some of you have been sitting here the whole time going, well, what do I do with this when I'm not married, right? Here's what I would say. There is much here. First, I want to say one thing. If you're single, we live in such, well, one, the image of God, you are, you are stamped, you fully image God. You don't need a man or a woman to complete you to be in the image of God. You, you are joined, and there's this expression of man and woman together in the image of God, but you are imaging fully. You're not lacking. You don't need a man or woman to complete you. Just right away, let me say that. And then here's the thing. In our hyper-sexualized culture where everything, the self has been psychologized and the psychological self was sexualized and then somehow now the psychologically sexualized self is now politicized. This is all up in the air and it just stirs all this stuff up. But here's the thing. You do not need to find yourself by fulfilling or completing yourself sexually with another human being. 
And when you live a life that says that joy, that, that sense, that search for pleasure and joy and intimacy is actually found because I know the God of the universe, I worship him, and my life is submitted to him, what happens is that cultivates in your heart a love, a faithfulness, a fidelity, that if God does one day provide a marriage for you, how sweet that will be. In other words, right now, begin cultivating that reality in your lives. And also, let me say, throughout church history, one of the things in the modern world, because we've just made, honestly, sometimes an idol of the nuclear family and how we understand it in the West, we forget that throughout church history, actually, singles and celibates who felt called to that, they understood it as a gift. The whole church understood that as a gift. We should understand that God gives a gift to those in the church, which is to be able to be celibate for life. Paul is an example of this. Jesus is an example of this. That it's a gift that at times, and here's why, because throughout church history, those were the individuals who often moved the church forward, who served the church forward, who wrote the books, who preached the sermons, who served in the churches. They were vital to the life of the church. In other words, hear this. Singleness is not a season just to escape. Singleness is a season to steward. God wants to use you in profound ways. It's not only once you get married and you have kids that you can start serving God. No, he will use you in unique ways in this season of life. And hear me, those of you who are single, who are still dating, we need you to lean in and steward this season of life for what it is. Don't just try to run from it. Don't just try to escape it. But see it for what it is, a gift of God for the season of life, his calling upon you. And then also, how can you support marriages? I would say one, just some of these are quick because of time. I, could, I was like, how do I not make this a two-hour sermon? Uh, there's so much. Support marriages by not gossiping or impugning motives of spouses when you're talking to them. When you're talking, we live in an age where everything is seen through a lens of suspicion, including this topic, but especially in marriage. And what I would say is, are you being careful to support and encourage and not cultivate a root of bitterness in a marriage? I'll come back to this. Obviously, there are lines when they're across that need to be intervened in, but do you point spouses back to one another and encourage them in their marriage, celebrate their marriage? When looking for a spouse, the number one way you can, when you're looking to get married, you're trying to determine, because let me say this really, I haven't said this yet. It is not, I'm going to say this clearly, biblically, it is not that all women submit to all men. There are specific institutions in which submission happens, like in a government structure, right? You don't just submit to any person who walks up and goes, I'm the emperor today. And you're like, well, I got to submit to this guy, right? No. Are they the emperor or not? Who is the emperor? That's actually the question to ask. But we have that. Who's your bot? Like you, you have these specific institutions God has given us. You have creation, male and female, and then within institutions, it plays out in different ways. And in marriage is where submission plays out. If your boyfriend is telling you to submit to him, tell him, stop it. There's lots I could go into with this. I think it completely jacks up the intimacy in the relationship when you're dating. 
A lot of you, some of you remember this, the waters of intimacy rise and you try to get in there and you try to lead like you're a husband or follow like you're a wife or something like that. And, the, and then that wa- it raises the waters of intimacy. Guess what? Next week you're calling me going, man, we're struggling with physical intimacy. Man, we're struggling with like relational intimacy and emotional and spiritual and physical intimacy all go up. When the waters go up, all the docks rise. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Do not start playing domestic home realities until it's actually a covenantal reality. Until then, what do you do? This is why community is so important. You look to how men, you look to how women relate to their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers. Women, you look to how men relate to their, especially if they're being boys, then you already have your answer. But you look to men and you see how they relate to their mothers and their brothers and their sisters, both biologically and in Christ. And you look to how the men lead one another. You look to how the women lead one another. And then you can tell, are they worth submitting to? If not, don't go near them with a 10-foot pole. But men, you get an opportunity to learn to walk with other men and lead and grow. And women, you get an opportunity to walk with other women and lead and grow. You get to learn how to speak the gospel. You get to learn how to open God's word. You get to learn how to draw near and draw out the hidden heart. You learn all of this. It's just, it prepares you then for marriage. So prepare by actually leaning into appropriate relationships where you can work out and learn what it means to be men and women. If you do that, believe me, you're going to do fine when you come together. A few things then, and I would also say, find a married couple if you're dating. Find a married couple. You go, this is living out in a healthy way. Ask them if you can be there for dinner and show up and say, I'll help you make dinner. I'll help you put the kids to bed and get into the mix and learn how they do it. A lot of this is better caught than taught. And so if you're dating, find a good couple and just say, how can I help you? Like literally, how can I come and like, I'll nanny and he, he will manny and we'll do this all night with you, right? And get in and learn how it's done. My phone is open. Uh, so from <laughs> Tim and I got to end this, guys. I'm sorry. I'm going over. This is so important. These last four principles, what I'm going to do is drop these, and I'm going to tell you this week, write these down. Husbands and wives, even singles, write these down. Concern, but husbands and wives, talk about these four. How are you doing? The husband's first. The husband's authority. This comes from Tim and Kathy Keller's Meaning of Marriage. Highly recommend that book as well. Uh, if you need a good marriage book, highly recommend it. Uh, the husband's authority, like Christ over us, is never to be used to please himself, but only to serve the interests of his wife and, and children. Peter says you are to lead her as a co-heir of eternal life. Do you have a plan to lead towards eternal life? Is your home merely for your own comforts, for getting through Sunday and getting to watch the games all day? Sorry, I know that hurts today. But is your home just geared towards pure comfort and entertainment and you just sit down on your chair like it's a throne and say it's good to be king? All those things are fine. They have their place. But does your home, are you leading towards eternal life? Your children, your wife. Two, a wife is never to be merely compliant but is to use her resources to empower. In other words, this is to to say where, 
Sometimes a wife, for instance, might know her Bible more. Sometimes a wife might be more mature in the faith. There are just sometimes these dynamics happen, and it looks like this. It's coming alongside and saying, hey, honey, I think we should actually stop, and at the end of the day, we should pray. I forget this, and my wife will say this to me. We're all freaking out, and I'm like, ah, oh, okay, let's go to bed. And she's like, hey, uh, <laughs> could maybe we could pray about this. What's she doing there? She's empowering me and saying, why don't you... I want you to pray, and I pot, and I'm like, wait, I do need to pray. She's challenging me. She's calling me to step to my role and now lead us to the presence of God and go before him with all of our anxieties and our fears. There's so many ways this plays out with marriage, but wives, encourage and challenge. Come up with a family vision plan. What's our family about? What are our goals? Next one, it's, yeah, uh, next one. A wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. Okay, I'm... This one is key. When abuse happens, this is in the context of God saying, I have instituted not just marriage. I instituted the state to punish evil and good. Wait, punish evil, not punish good. You know what I mean. Support the good. Promote the good. Punish evil, promote the good. If there is abuse in a marriage... You are ultimately submitted to the Lord. You ultimately worship the Lord. And he has put in place different institutions, and those institutions, by his design, if there is abuse, there should be a phone call to that institution to come in and deal legally with the abuse. Submission in marriage does not support physical or emotional abuse in a marriage. God has instituted different institutions where this needs to be dealt with. And so if it's happening, a phone call needs to be made. Clear? This is one of the things that gets run away. And I will say, this is where this has been abused within the church, and it needs to stop. And I celebrate that it is finally being dealt with. All right, got it. And assuming the role of headship is only done for purposes of ministering to your wife and family make decisions together when there are massive things i love seeing a husband and wife trying to wrestle through big life decisions even small do you have a process of where you are actually working through life together partnering through life refining what this looks like over time to partner you don't just run away and make decisions and if there is a destructive decision to the family and she the wife is confident it would be destructive and it's not submitted to God, then she can put her foot down and say no and should. What I would say is this week, I would take those four and I would discuss them. And I would ask yourself, like, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how do you think we're doing on this? And then compare your answers. Talk about it and then go, okay, we're a four out of 10. How could we become a six? Become a five and open up the conversation. But male and female, he created you to adorn yourself with the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. Worship God and submit yourself to his design and cultivate a home filled with his joy for the sake of his glory and truth and goodness and beauty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, that we have your word in times when this is completely countercultural. Lord, we're so distanced from this is even something acceptable to talk about. Lord, I ask that you would help us do it with wisdom. Lord, it wouldn't just be a pining after some 
Fargon model of life or cultural, weird Christian cultural plaque built up over the truth of Scripture. But Lord, we would, we would go to your word and Lord, we would seek to truly understand what does it really mean to be men and women? What does it really mean to be husbands and wife? And Lord, we lean into this design and we would work it out fiercely in submission to you and worship of you because worship of you is obedience that comes from enjoyment of you. Lord, would you give us life? Would you permeate our homes with life? Would you bring healing where healing desperately needs to take place? Would you give repentance where repentance needs to take place? Lord, would you, would you comfort the afflicted in this and would you afflict the comfortable? Lord, would you make our homes an outpost of heaven, a picture of your glory for the sake of your glory? We ask this in Jesus' name.